Section 12 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alexander, chapters 32 to 41. After the men were gone, Alexander lay down in his tent, and is said to have passed the rest of the night in a deeper sleep than usual, so that when his officers came to him in the early morning they were amazed, and on their own authority issued orders that the soldiers should first take breakfast. Then, since the occasion was urgent, Parmenio entered the tent, and standing by his couch called Alexander twice or thrice by name, and when he had thus roused him, he asked him how he could possibly sleep as if he were victorious, instead of being about to fight the greatest of all his battles. Then Alexander said with a smile, What, pray, dost thou not think that we are already victorious, now that we are relieved from wandering about in a vast and desolated country in pursuit of a Darius who avoids a battle? And not only before the battle, but also in the very thick of the struggle, did he show himself great and firm in his confident calculations. For in the battle the left wing under Parmenio was thrown back, and in distress, when the Bactrian cavalry fell upon the Macedonians with great impetuosity and violence, and when Mazaeus sent horsemen around outside the line of battle to attack those who were guarding the Macedonian baggage. Therefore, too, Parmenio, much disturbed by both occurrences, sent messengers to Alexander telling him that camp and baggage were gone, unless he speedily sent strong reinforcements from front to rear. Now it chanced that at that instant Alexander was about to give the signal for the onset to those under his command. But when he heard Parmenio's message, he declared that Parmenio was beside himself, and had lost the use of his reason, and had forgotten in his distress that victors add the baggage of the enemy to their own, and that those who are vanquished must not think about their wealth or their slaves, but only how they may fight gloriously and die with honour. After sending this message to Parmenio, he put on his helmet, but the rest of his armour he had on as he came from his tent, namely a vest of Sicilian make girt about him, and over this a breastplate of two-ply linen from the spoils taken at Issus. His helmet was of iron, but gleamed like polished silver, a work of Theophilus, and there was fitted to this a gorget, likewise of iron, set with precious stones. He had a sword, too, of astonishing temper and lightness, a gift from the king of the Cetaeans, and he had trained himself to use a sword for the most part in his battles. He wore a belt also, which was too elaborate for the rest of his armour, for it was a work of Helicon the Ancient, and a mark of honour from the city of Rhodes, which had given it to him. This also he was wont to wear in his battles. As long, then, as he was riding about and marshalling some part of his phalanx, or exhorting, or instructing, or reviewing his men, he spared Bucephalus, who was now past his prime, and used another horse. But whenever he was going into action, Bucephalus would be led up, and he would mount him, and at once begin the attack. On this occasion, he made a very long speech to the Thessalians and the other Greeks. Footnote. Sometimes the term Hellenes excludes, and sometimes it includes the Macedonians. The context must decide. End footnote. And when he saw that they encouraged him with shouts to lead them against the barbarians, he shifted his lance into his left hand, and with his right appealed to the gods, as Callisthenes tells us, praying them, if he was really sprung from Zeus to defend and strengthen the Greeks. Aristander the seer, too, wearing a white mantle and having a crown of gold upon his head, 
rode along the ranks, pointing out to him an eagle which soared above the head of Alexander, and directed his flight straight against the enemy, at which sight great courage filled the beholders, and after mutual encouragement and exhortation, the cavalry charged at full speed upon the enemy, and the phalanx rolled on after them like a flood. But before the foremost ranks were engaged, the barbarians gave way and were hotly pursued. Alexander, driving the conquered foe towards the centre of their array, where Darius was. For from afar he was seen by Alexander through the deep ranks of the royal squadron of horse drawn up in front of him, towering conspicuous, a fine-looking man and tall, standing on a lofty chariot, fenced about by a numerous and brilliant array of horsemen who were densely massed around the chariot and drawn up to receive the enemy. But when they saw Alexander close at hand and terrible, and driving those who fled before him upon those who held their ground, they were smitten with fear and scattered for the most part. The bravest and noblest of them, however, slain in front of their king and falling in heaps upon one another, obstructed the Macedonians in their pursuit, weaving and twining themselves in their last agonies about riders and horses. But Darius, now that all the terrors of the struggle were before his eyes, and now that the forces drawn up to protect him were crowded back upon him, since it was not an easy matter to turn his chariot about and drive it away, seeing that the wheels were obstructed and, and entangled in the great numbers of the fallen, while the horses, surrounded and hidden away by the multitude of dead bodies, were rearing up and frightening the charioteer, forsook his chariot and his armour, mounted a mare which, as they say, had newly foaled, and took to flight. However, it is thought that he would not then have made his escape, had not fresh horsemen come from Parmenio, summoning Alexander to his aid on the ground that a large force of the enemy still held together there and would not give ground. For there is general complaint that in that battle Parmenio was sluggish and inefficient, either because old age was now impairing somewhat his courage, or because he was made envious and resentful by the arrogance and pomp, to use the words of Callisthenes, of Alexander's power. At the time, then, although he was annoyed by the summons, the king did not tell his soldiers the truth about it, but on the ground that it was dark, and he would therefore remit further slaughter, sounded a recall, and as he rode towards the endangered portion of his army, he heard by the way that the enemy had been utterly defeated and was in flight. Footnote. Arian makes no mention of a second appeal for aid from Parmenio. End footnote. The battle having had this issue, the empire of the Persians was thought to be utterly dissolved, and Alexander, proclaimed king of Asia, made magnificent sacrifices to the gods and rewarded his friends with wealth, estates, and provinces. And being desirous of honour among the Greeks, he wrote them that all their tyrannies were abolished and they might live under their own laws. Moreover, he wrote the Plataeans especially that he would rebuild their city, because their ancestors had furnished their territory to the Greeks for the struggle in behalf of their freedom. Footnote in 479 BC. End footnote. He sent also to the people of Croton in Italy a portion of the spoils, honouring the zeal and valour of their athlete, Phalus, who in the Median Wars, when the rest of the Greeks in Italy refused to help their brother Greeks, fitted out a ship at his own cost and sailed with it to Salamis, that he might have some share in the peril there. So considerate was Alexander towards every form of valour, and such a friend and guardian of noble deeds. As he traversed all Babylonia, which at once submitted to him, he was most of all amazed at the chasm from which fire continually streamed forth as from a spring, and at the stream of naphtha, so abundant as to form a lake not far from the chasm. This naphtha is in other ways like asphaltum, but is so sensitive to fire that before the flame touches it, it is kindled by the very radiance about the flame, and often sets fire also to the intervening air. 
To show its nature and power, the barbarians sprinkled the street leading to Alexander's quarters with small quantities of the liquid. Then, standing at the farther end of the street, they applied their torches to the moistened spots, for it was now getting dark. The first spots at once caught fire, and without an appreciable interval of time, but with the speed of thought, the flame darted to the other end, and the street was one continuous fire. Now there was a certain Athenophanes, an Athenian, one of those who were accustomed to minister to the person of the king when he bathed and anointed himself, and to furnish suitable diversion for his thoughts. This man, one time when they were standing by Alexander in the bathroom, a youth who had a ridiculously plain countenance, but was a graceful singer, his name was Stephanus, said, Wilt thou, O king, that we make a trial of the liquid upon Stephanus? For if it should lay hold of him and not be extinguished, I would certainly say that his power was invincible and terrible. The youth also, strangely enough, offered himself for the experiment, and as soon as he touched the liquid and began to anoint himself with it, his body broke out into so great a flame and was so wholly possessed by fire that Alexander fell into extreme perplexity and fear, and had it not been by chance that many were standing by holding vessels of water for the bath, the youth would have been consumed before aid reached him. Even as it was, they had great difficulty in putting out the fire, for it covered the boy's whole body, and after they had done so, he was in a sorry plight. It is natural, then, that some who wish to bring fable into conformity with truth should say that this naphtha is the drug which Medea used, when, in the tragedies, she anoints the crown and the robe. For it was not from these objects themselves, they say, nor of its own accord that the fire shot up, but a flame was placed near them, which was then so swiftly drawn into conjunction with them that the senses could not take cognizance of it. For the rays and emanations of fire which come from a distance impart to some bodies merely light and warmth. But in those which are dry and porous, or which have sufficiently rich moisture, they collect themselves together, break into fierce flame and transform the material. There has been much discussion about the origin of... Footnote. This naphtha and the first weather clause have fallen out of the text. End footnote or whether, rather, the liquid substance that feeds the flame flows out from a soil which is rich and productive of fire. For the soil of Babylonia is very fiery, so that grains of barley often leap out of the ground and bound away, as if its inflammation made the ground throb, and the inhabitants during the hot season sleep on skins filled with water. Harpalus, moreover, when he was left as overseer of the country and was eager to adorn the royal gardens and walks with Hellenic plants, succeeded with all except ivy. This the soil would not support, but always killed it. The plant could not endure the temper of the soil, for the soil was fiery, while the plant was fond of coolness. However, if such digressions are kept within bounds, perhaps my impatient readers will find less fault with them. On making himself master of Susa, Alexander came into possession of 40,000 talents of coined money in the palace, and of untold furniture and wealth besides. Footnote. A talent's weight was something over fifty pounds. End footnote. Among this, they say, was found five thousand talents weight of purple from Hermione, which, although it had been stored there for a hundred and ninety years, still kept its colours fresh and lively. The reason for this, they say, is that honey was used in the purple dyes, and white olive oil in the white dyes. For these substances, after the like space of time, are seen to have a brilliancy that is pure and lustrous. Moreover, Danan says that the Persian kings had water also brought from the Nile and the Danube, and stood up among their treasures, as a sort of confirmation of the greatness of their empire and the universality of their sway. Persis was difficult of access, owing to the roughness of the country, 
and was guarded by the noblest of the Persians, for Darius had taken to flight. But Alexander found a guide to conduct him thither by a circuit of no great extent. The man spoke two languages, since his father was a Lycian and his mother a Persian, and it was he, they say, whom the Pythian priestess had in mind when she prophesied, Alexander being yet a boy, that a Lycus, or wolf, would be Alexander's guide on his march against the Persians. Footnote. Arian speaks only of a forced march through the mountains. End footnote. In this country, then, as it turned out, there was a great slaughter of the prisoners taken, for Alexander himself writes that he gave orders to have the inhabitants butchered, thinking that this would be to his advantage, and they said that as much coined money was found there, footnote, in Persepolis, end footnote, as at Susa, and that it took 10,000 pairs of mules and 5,000 camels to carry away the other furniture and wealth there. On beholding a great statue of Xerxes, which had been carelessly overthrown by a throng that forced its way into the palace, Alexander stopped before it, and accosting it as if it had been alive, said, Shall I pass on and leave thee lying there, because of thine expedition against the Hellenes, or because of thy magnanimity and virtue in other ways, shall I set thee up again? But finally, after communing with himself a long time in silence, he passed on. Wishing to refresh his soldiers, for it was winter time, he spent four months in that place, and it is said that when he took his seat for the first time under the golden canopy on the royal throne, Demaratus the Corinthian, a well-meaning man and a friend of Alexander's, as he had been of Alexander's father, burst into tears, as old men will, and declared that those Hellenes were deprived of great pleasure, who had died before seeing Alexander seated on the throne of Darius. After this, as he was about to march forth against Darius, it chanced that he consented to take part in a merry drinking bout of his companions, at which women also came to meet their lovers and shared in their wine and revelry. The most famous among these women was Thais, an Athenian, the mistress of Ptolemy, who was afterwards king. She, partly in graceful praise of Alexander, and partly to make sport for him, as the drinking went on, was moved to utter a speech which befitted the character of her native country, but was too lofty for one of her kind. She said, namely, that for all her hardships in wandering over Asia, she was being requited that day by thus revelling luxuriously in the splendid palace of the Persians. But it would be a still greater pleasure to go in revel, rout, and set fire to the house of the Xerxes who burned Athens, she herself kindling the fire under the eyes of Alexander in order that a tradition might prevail among men that the women in the train of Alexander inflicted a greater punishment upon the Persians in behalf of Hellas than all her famous commanders by sea and land. As soon as she had thus spoken, tumultuous applause arose, and the companions of the king eagerly urged him on, so that he yielded to their desires, and leaping to his feet, with a garland on his hand and a torch in his hand, led them the way. The company followed with shouts and revelry and surrounded the palace, while the rest of the Macedonians, who learned about it, ran thither with torches and were full of joy, for they hoped that the burning and destruction of the palace was the act of one who had fixed his thoughts on home, and did not intend to dwell among barbarians. This is the way the deed was done, according to some writers, but others say it was premeditated. However, it is agreed that Alexander speedily repented and gave orders to put out the fire. Alexander was naturally munificent, and became still more so as his wealth increased. His gifts, too, were accompanied by a kindly spirit, with which alone, to tell the truth, a giver confers a favour. I will mention a few instances. Ariston, the captain of the Paeonians, having slain an enemy, brought his head and showed it to Alexander, saying, 
In my country, O king, such a gift as this is rewarded with a golden beaker. Yes, says Alexander with a laugh, an empty one, but I will pledge thy health with one which is full of pure wine. Again, a common Macedonian was driving a mule laden with some of the royal gold, and when the beast gave out, took the load on his own shoulders and tried to carry it. The king then, seeing the man in great distress, and learning the facts of the case, said, as the man was about to lay his burden down, Don't give out, but finish your journey by taking this load to your own tent. Furthermore, he was generally more displeased with those who had not taken his gifts than with those who asked for them. And so he wrote to Phocion in a letter that he would not treat him as a friend in future if he rejected his favours. Again, to Serapion, one of the youths who played that ball with him, he used to give nothing because he asked for nothing. Accordingly, whenever Serapion had the ball, he would throw it to others until the king said, Won't you give it to me? No, said Serapion, because you don't ask for it. Whereat the king burst out laughing and made him many presents. With Proteus, however, a clever wag and boon companion, he appeared to be angry. But when the man's friends begged his forgiveness, as did Proteus himself with tears, the king said that he was his friend again. Whereat Proteus said, In that case, O king, give me something to prove it first. Accordingly, the king ordered that five talents should be given him. What lofty airs his friends and bodyguards were wont to display over the wealth bestowed by him is plain from a letter which Olympias wrote to him. She says, I beg thee to find other ways of conferring favours on those thou lovest and holdest in honour. As it is, thou makest them all the equals of kings, and providest them with an abundance of friends, whilst thyself thou strippest bare. Olympias often wrote him in like vein, but Alexander kept her writing secret, except once when her Hephaestion, as was his wont, read with him a letter which had been opened. The king did not prevent him, but took the ring from his own finger, and applied its seal to the lips of Hephaestion. Again, though the son of Mosaeus, the most influential man at the court of Darius, already had a province, Alexander gave him a second and a larger one. He, however, declined it, saying, O king, formerly there was one Darius, but now thou hast made many Alexanders. To Parmenio, moreover, Alexander gave the house of Bagoas at Susa, in which it is said there was found apparel worth a thousand talents. Again, he wrote to Antipater, bidding him keep guards about his person, since plots were being laid against him. To his mother also he sent many presents, but would not suffer her to meddle in affairs nor interfere in his campaigns, and when she chided him for this, he bore her harshness patiently. Once, however, after reading a long letter which Antipater had written in denunciation of her, he said Antipater knew not that one tear of a mother effaced ten thousand letters. He saw that his favourites had grown altogether luxurious and were vulgar in the extravagance of their ways of living. For instance, Hagnon the Teon used to wear silver nails in his boots. Leonatus had dust for his gymnastic exercises brought to him on many camels from Egypt. Philotus had hunting nets a hundred furlongs long. When they took their exercise in their baths, more of them actually used myrrh than olive oil, and they had in their train rubbers and chamberlains. Alexander therefore chided them in gentle and reasonable fashion. He was amazed, he said, that after they had undergone so many and so great contests, they did not remember that those who conquer by toil sleep more sweetly than those who are conquered by their toil, and did not see from a comparison of their own lives with those of the Persians that it is a very servile thing to be luxurious, but a very royal thing to toil. And yet, said he, how can a man take care of his own horse or furbish up his spear and helmet 
if he is unaccustomed to using his hands on his own dear person. Know ye not, said he, that the end and object of conquest is to avoid doing the same thing as the conquered. Accordingly, he exerted himself yet more strenuously in military and hunting expeditions, suffering distress and risking his life, so that a Spartan ambassador, who came up with him as he was bringing down a great lion, said, Nobly indeed, Alexander, hast thou struggled with the lion to see which should be king. This hunting scene, Craterus dedicated at Delphi, with bronze figures of the lion, the dogs, the king and Gaius with the lion, and himself coming to his assistance. Some of the figures were moulded by Lysippus, and some by Leocares. Alexander then, in exercising himself and at the same time inciting others to deeds of valour, was wont to court danger, but his friends, whose wealth and magnificence now gave him a desire to live in luxury and idleness, were impatient of his long wanderings and military expeditions, and gradually went so far as to abuse him and speak ill of him. He, however, was very mildly disposed at first towards this treatment of himself, and used to say that it was the lot of a king to confer favours and be ill-spoken of, therefore. And yet, in the most trifling attentions which he paid his familiar friends, there were marks of great goodwill and esteem. I will instance a few of these. He found fault with Pusitas by letter because, after being bitten by a bear, he wrote about it to the rest of his friends, but did not tell him. Now, however, said he, write me how you are, and tell me whether any of your fellow huntsmen left you in the lurch that I may punish them. To Hephaestion, who was absent on some business, he wrote that while they were diverting themselves with hunting in Ignumion, Craterus encountered the lance of Perdiccas, and was wounded in the thighs. After Pusitas had safely recovered from an illness, Alexander wrote to the physician Alexippus, expressing his thanks. While Craterus was sick, Alexander had a vision in his sleep, whereupon he offered certain sacrifices himself for the recovery of his friend, and bade him also sacrifice. He wrote also to Posanius, the physician, who wished to administer hellebore to Craterus, partly expressing distress, and partly advising him how to use the medicine. Those who first brought word to him that Harplus had absconded, namely Ephialtes and Sissus, he put in fetters on the ground that they were falsely accusing the man. When he was sending home his aged and infirm soldiers, Eurylochus of Aege got himself enrolled among the sick, and then, when it was discovered that he had nothing the matter with him, confessed that he was in love with Telesippa, and was bent on following along with her on her journey to the seaboard. Alexander asked of what parentage the girl was, and on hearing that she was a freeborn courtesan, said, I will help you, O Eurylochus, in your amour, but see to it that we try to persuade Telesippa, either by arguments or by gifts, since she is freeborn. End of section 12